Well, good morning. Welcome again. It's wonderful to be with you all this morning. I told a couple people this morning, it feels like parent weekend. We have lots of parents visiting this morning. So welcome uh, to those of you who aren't normally with us. We have two Sundays left in the book of Galatians. Last July, we preached our first sermon from Galatians, and we took a little break during December and January, but now we're coming to a close. We're in Galatians 6 today, and I hope it has been fruitful for you. I hope it's been encouraging for you. It, it has been so encouraging to me to see the, the power of the gospel to change our everyday lives, the, the pressure-releasing good news that I am not justified, that I don't have to earn the verdict of the, the voice on high by my own performance or my own power or my own ability, but it is given to me freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has been, has been such an encouraging and practical help for me through Galatians. And I hope this morning that we see that in a fresh way. Uh, so Galatians 6 verses 11 through 14, Paul writes, Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the word, world. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Paul, at the end of his letter to Galatians, steals the pen from his secretary. He wants the Galatians to know that he's writing in his own handwriting now, and he's writing with very large letters, uh, and, and he is reminding them of the gospel that he's been preaching, the whole book of Galatians. He's, he's giving us here in these short, this short passage two ways to live. And the first is what he calls boasting in the flesh. Paul is saying that the troublemakers, the false teachers, the, the people who came into the Galatian churches and started teaching against the gospel that he had preached there, boast in the flesh. They're the ones, he says, who want you to get circumcised and justify yourselves by your works. And this is boasting in the flesh. What, what does it mean to boast? Is he simply, is he simply talking about bragging or being cocky or arrogant or sort of showing off, or is it more than that? The word actually has uh, somewhat of a military background. And a boast refers to the, the thing that uh, an army or a group of soldiers might say to kind of pump themselves up before they go into battle. And they would be emphasizing their unique strength or advantage in the battle. So you actually see this in certain places in the Old Testament. You read things like, don't boast in spears or swords, so they might say, you know, the, the, the length of our spears and the sharp edge of our swords is how we're going to win the battle. Or don't boast, uh, the, the Psalms say, in chariots or in horses. Uh, the Proverbs say that the wealthy boast in their wealth. So your, your boast is really the, the thing that you look to, that you trust in, that you put your hope in to help you accomplish the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Here, Paul is saying the Judaizers, the false teachers, are depending on, trusting in, boasting in their flesh. That is their natural ability. Why? Because they want to gain something from the world. And when you have something to gain in the world, when you're trying to gain something from the world, you use your flesh, your natural abilities, in order to get whatever you think will be delivered. Uh, what did they want from the world? He, he calls them out. He makes it clear. Remember, 
the context of, of uh, the Galatian church. They're in a, a Roman context where basically every Roman citizen is required to worship the Roman pantheon, right? So religion in ancient cultures was not a personal and private thing where you're free to go home and exercise your religion however you want. They had to worship the Roman gods because otherwise they would basically bring the anger of the gods not just on themselves, but on the whole culture. So as a Roman citizen, you had to worship the Roman gods with basically one exception, and that was for the Jewish people. Because they worshiped one God, they kind of kept to themselves, they had their own weird diet, they obeyed their own laws, and they were kind of insular. They had this sort of exception clause to be able to practice their own religion. Well, on along comes the, the Christians. And what are they? Are they Romans? Well, many of them are non-Jewish, so they have that background. But they're not worshiping the Roman deities. But are they Jewish? Well, kind of. They claim to worship the Jewish God, but they're claiming to worship him through the Jewish Messiah, which is Jesus. And so they're, they're also worshiping Jesus. And because of that, they're being pressured from both sides, right? The Romans are persecuting them because they're not worshiping the Roman gods. And the Jews are persecuting them because they're not worshiping the one true God correctly, according to the Jews. And now you have these Jewish Christians saying, hey, you could, this pressure could be relieved, your situation could be alleviated if you would just go all the way. Yes, worshiping Jesus is good. Yes, you're, you're justified by faith, but you're not only justified by faith. You also need to go ahead and become a Jew. And that way, you'll, you'll be fully justified and you'll also get the, the persecution off your back. So you need to do what? You need to obey the, the Jewish law, but in particular, you need to get circumcised. The sort of external marker that you were a Jew. And Paul is calling them out He's saying the only reason they're saying this is because they don't want to suffer. They don't want to suffer for Christ. They want to find their identity and their boast in something that will alleviate suffering. And he says, he says, how do I know this? Because the whole law-keeping thing, verse 13, it's not even genuine. He says the circumcised don't even keep the whole law themselves. And yet they want you to keep the law. He says they just obey the external, that the outward parts that make it look like they are keeping the law. And they're not concerned about the inward obedience of the law. They're boasting, in other words, not in the actual law, but in their performance, in their ability, in their own power to gain what they want from the world. Now, you may hear this and think this sounds utterly irrelevant to me. <laughs> I'm not persecuted for my faith. I'm not tempted to, to get circumcised in order to, to not be persecuted anymore. Like, what does this have to do with me? I, I think it has everything to do with you. Because Paul is, again, basically saying there's two ways to live. And the first way is, if you still have something to gain from the world, if you look at the world and think, it has something to offer me, then you will boast in the flesh in order to get whatever it is that you want out of the world. Let me try to make this a little more concrete with a few examples. I was reading an article this week about the uh, relationship between the music industry and TikTok and how it is a, a sad reality. A couple of you guys just gave each other knowing glances. Uh, it, is, it is a sad reality that all these musicians are saying, basically, the only way that I can make it as a musician, the only way that I can get what the world has to offer me is if I become an expert at TikTok. And if I master the algorithms, they say, I can't, this article was saying, musicians can no longer disappear in a cabin in the woods for a week and write an amazing record. They don't have time to. 
right? Because they, they, would, they would miss out on, on keeping up with the algorithms. They don't have time to spend their days doing co-writes or going around playing college campuses to tr- sort of build a following. Basically, all they have time to do is to post the right videos that have the right content at the right time to try to go viral, to try to earn a record deal, which will then, re- then require them to keep on doing more of the same thing. Now, what does this have to do with boasting in the flesh? The world has something to offer to them. And though they may not want to take the route that they have to take to get it, they have to. And so their boast, their trust becomes what? Not in being a great musician, but in mastering the, quote, hellish, overstuffed, harassment-laden, uber-competitive attention economy because otherwise no one will know who you are. What a, what a powerful picture of boasting in the flesh. Unless we boast in the flesh, we think no one will know who I am. Uh, this is relevant in other categories as well, perhaps relevant to more of you. Parents, uh, you boast in your kids being well-behaved. You don't walk around thinking, you know, that everybody look at my kids, look how well-behaved they are, but you put your trust in them being well-behaved. Why? Not because you particularly love them, though of course you do, but because you have something to gain if they are particularly well-behaved. Your life will be easier It'll be less stressful. Other people will look at you and think, wow, you've really got it together. Look how well-behaved your kids are. If, you, if other people see you dragging them, kicking and screaming through Kroger, they're gonna think that, that person doesn't have any idea what they're doing as a parent. So you want them to be particularly well-behaved. That becomes your boast. You boast in your money. You say, I don't love money, please. <laughs> yes, you do. You do. Why? Because you look at your life and you think, if I'm going to get what the world has to offer, then I need to own a house. It needs to be a bigger house than the one I have now. I need to be able to send my kids to private school. I need to afford to go on a couple vacations a year. And the only way that you can do this is if you make enough money. So money becomes your boast, the thing that you trust in to give you the life that you want. You boast in your beauty or your strength. You boast certainly in other people's approval and affirmation and acceptance. You boast in your help. You boast in your possessions. You boast in your performance at work. We boast in all these things. And Paul comes along in Galatians 6 and says, literally, far be it from me to ever boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, (laughs) we don't have a clue how radical that sentence is. We don't have a clue how absurd that sentence is. Doug Moo, who's a New Testament scholar, says that in Paul's day, taking pride in the cross would be something like taking pride in the guillotine or the electric chair today. I actually don't think that's nearly visceral enough. I think that the the best, in in an American Southern context, the imagery that that hits home the most is much more visceral, and it is that for Paul to boast in the cross would be akin to somebody in America saying, I boast in the lynching tree. James Cone, who's a um, controversial theologian, a a liberation theologian, uh, wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he says, the conspicuous absence of the lynching tree in American theological discourse and preaching is profoundly revealing, especially since the crucifixion was clearly a first century lynching. And he's right. Because the cross wasn't just about punishment or death, it was about shame. 
and mockery and torture for the approval of a crowd. In the Roman world, the cross was not merely a means of execution. Tom Holland, who's a historian of ancient Rome, among other things, says that you have to get into the Roman consciousness. He says, for the Romans, to be shamed was almost as terrible as to be tortured. (laughs) To be shamed was almost as terrible as to be tortured. He says, that's why crucifixion was the paradigmatic death that was visited not only on rebels, but on slaves. What do rebels and slaves have in common? Rome is saying, if you get a little too big for your britches, If you get a little uppity, you think you're better than you are, we will erase you from the history of the universe. We will stamp you out like a bug. We will put you on a cross and not only torture you, but shame you. The death was meant to erase you. And Fleming Rutledge, a theologian and and pastor, says uh, she wrote a book on the crucifixion. And she says that the point of the Roman cross was to erase you. And she makes the point that it accomplished its purpose because in spite of the fact that thousands and thousands of people were crucified before Jesus, he is the only name up to his point in history, the only name we have in history of a single person to be crucified. In spite of the fact that thousands were crucified. Why? Because it successfully erased their names from the history books. Now, what was crucifixion like? The crucifixion of Jesus seems to be fairly typical. Uh, It was typical insofar as it could be because room tended to be left for the creativity of the people who were doing the torturing and the crucifying. The victim would typically be whipped. We know the crucifixion of Jesus, that there's a a cat of nine tails, right, was the name of the whip. It had several whips attached to one, and it had, uh, like, bone or metal in it that, that increased the torture of the whipping. Uh, the, the person being crucified would always be forced to carry their own cross and they would come to the place of crucifixion and then they would be fastened to it, sometimes by ropes, but more often, as we know, by nails. Uh, we have this picture, right, of Jesus on the cross with his, with his legs sort of crossed into the side and, and the nail going through both feet at the same time. But there's an archaeological discovery recently that showed that probably what, what happened more often was both feet would be on either side of the vertical beam and nailed to, to the sides of the vertical beam. And the, 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 the victim would be, of course, crucified naked. So what was the point of, of nailing their feet to the sides? It was to further expose the fact that they were naked, This is about shame. Uh, If your eyes weren't put out in the torture process, they would usually be eaten by birds while you were on the cross because you you couldn't free your hands to do anything to get the birds off of you. And this is is how Jesus died. The first century Jewish historian Josephus said, crucifixion is the most wretched of deaths. Now, why am I spending time going into this? Because I want you to realize how radical the claim is that is at the heart of Christianity. By the way, this is where James Cone is wrong. He argues in his book that the point of the cross is not some sort of doctrinal statement or some theory of atonement, but it's about God identifying with the poor and the oppressed. And I say, why can't it be both? Why can't it be both? Why, why can't there be a fundamental doctrinal claim at the heart of the cross? And there is. And that fundamental claim is that at the beating heart of Christianity is the fact that the greatest being ever suffered the most wretched death ever. 
that the greatest being that heaven has ever known suffered the most wretched death that the world has ever invented. Do you realize how absurd of a claim this is? There's a, an archaeological discovery from around 200 AD of a piece of graffiti. And there's a, it's a picture of a, of a cross. And on the cross is a man with a, the head of a donkey. And underneath it, it just says, Alexamenos worships his God. And it's mocking and making fun of Christianity, saying, you people worship a God who was crucified. It's weak and it's foolish. And the claim of Paul is, I boast in that. That is my boast. That is the thing that I trust. Not my own ability, not the flesh. I boast in the, the most glorious of beings being subjected to the most brutal of deaths. Paul talks about boasting everywhere. In Romans 5, he talks about boasting in the hope of the glory of God and in our afflictions. In 1 Corinthians 1, he boasts in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 11, I boast in my weaknesses. Philippians 3, I boast in Christ Jesus. So he's flirting with it in all of these letters, but only here does he so clearly say, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How could we possibly boast in the cross? How could we possibly boast in something so weak? Only if the world is dead to us and we are dead to the world. <laughs> Only if the world no longer has anything to offer us. Paul is saying the world no longer, what, what does he mean, by the way, when he says the world? John Chrysostom, the church father, says, by world, Paul means the affairs of life, human praise, distinguished positions, reputation, wealth, and all things that have a show of splendor. So Paul is saying all the good things that the world has to offer, they're dead to me. And I'm dead to them. It, it, the world no longer has anything to offer me. My, why? Why? Because what the cross brought him was everything that his heart longed for. <laughs> Through the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, I already have everything I need. I already have everything that my soul longs for. So there's nothing, not an ounce that can be added to me by an employer or a lover or a bank account. The world is dead to me and I am dead to the world because he was given everything his soul longed for through the death of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this a bit autobiographically in Philippians 3. He says, look, if anybody could have gained the world through the flesh, it was me. I was the right race, ethnicity. I was the right religion. I was more religious than anybody else. I was more moral than anybody else. I was more zealous about religion than anybody else. And he says, it didn't, it didn't do it for me. Ultimately, it couldn't bring me what it was promising to bring me. And then I found Christ, this suffering servant and savior. And now he says, I consider all that other stuff garbage, trash. Probably uses a first century cuss word when he says that. It's trash. Through the cross, Paul is saying, I have infinite joy and life and love and goodness and peace. Why? Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross was to trade places with us after living the life that we failed to live, he died the death that we deserved. He took the penalty that we deserved so that we could have everything our hearts longed for in God. And now Paul can say, as Tim Keller often said, Paul knows that because of the cross, the only set of eyes that matters in the universe looks at him and sees an absolute beauty. So what else does he need from the world? What could possibly add to that which is already infinite? Now, as we close, 
a little self-diagnosis. How do you know what you're boasting in? How do you know if, like Paul, you're boasting in the cross or if you're still boasting in your flesh? There's a few diagnostic questions you could ask yourself. One, what do you put on display for others to see? What do you put on display in your life for others to see? When do you become oversensitive or easily offended? What would you be utterly devastated to lose? Like, what would, what would you be crushed to lose? When do you feel embarrassed or ashamed? Let me just walk you through how this works, and I'll be a little bit autobiographical here. What do I, what do I put on, on display for others to see? Well, it's a bit tricky. I, I put my knowledge and education on display for others to see, but I also want you to think I'm humble, so I try to do it without, you letting, me, uh, without letting you know that I'm, that I'm doing it. When do I get oversensitive or easily offended? Well, you could ask my wife about this after the service if you want to, but one of the situations that I get overly offended or easily overly sensitive is when I feel like my competence or my knowledge is being put down especially in front of other people. If you say something that draws my, my competence or my knowledge into question in front of others, I get really sensitive about it. One of my former coworkers is here this morning and, and our boss used to, he knew this about me. And so he would often say to me uh, in front of other people, he would bring up a subject and he'd say, Taylor doesn't know anything about this. <laughs> uh, what would I be utterly devastated to lose? A, a number of things, but in this vein, my critical thinking abilities, right? My ability to read. When am I ashamed or embarrassed? Again, when it's proven that I don't know what I'm talking about. And so I get sensitive, anxious, self-conscious, worried. And when something doesn't go well, I get frustrated, angry, defensive. But what if I boasted in the cross? What if I lived like I was dead to the world and the world was dead to me? I would put my weakness on display, I'd never get sensitive. I'd never get easily offended. Why? Because if I really boast in the cross, then I'm already admitting that the worst thing about me is already on display for everybody to see. That I'm so bad that Jesus had to die to save me and I could do nothing about it. The worst thing about me is already on display. Why, why would I be embarrassed about anything else? Why would I be ashamed about anything else? I would never, leave, I would never be utterly devastated about losing anything. Because the one thing that means the most to me cannot be taken away. And anything that I lose in this life will either just make me more like Jesus or will speed me up in the process of getting to him. Do you see how this would change things? I would live, if this were true, and you would live if you boasted in the cross, one, like you have nothing to gain from the world. Have you ever been around somebody who was, I don't maybe so just settled in themselves, self-confident but not arrogant, just settled, or maybe somebody who was so wealthy <laughs> that they knew that they had nothing to gain from other people. Like that, that when they were with you, you could just tell they weren't trying to take anything from you. They weren't trying to get anything from you because there's nothing that you could add to them. That, you, you, the kind of peace and calm that people like that have, that's, that's what our lives could be like in all of life if we look at the world and say, this, this has nothing to offer me. I already have everything that I need. We would also live not only like we have nothing to gain, but like we have nothing to lose. And you know, you know, we think about this in sports sometimes. We say that team's playing like they have nothing to lose. And usually that means they're just, you know, pulling up from half court, right? Taking crazy shots, taking all kinds of risks. If you lived your life 
If you lived your life like you had nothing to lose, think about the boldness and the courage and the risks that you would take for God's glory, for the love of your neighbors. You might sell all your possessions. You might become a missionary. You might share the gospel with a neighbor. You might have a hard conversation that you need to have. This is how we can live. This is the life that's being held out for us. But only, the only way we'll get there is when we see the infinite beauty of knowing God and being known by him and how it outweighs everything that the world has to offer. Jesus told a parable of a guy who was out in the field and he stumbled across buried treasure. And he looked at it and he's amazed. It's the, it's the biggest treasure in the world. And so he immediately digs the hole back up and buries it and covers it up. And he goes and sells everything he has so he can buy this field. And people are thinking, why did you pay so much for the field? Why did you sell everything you had for the field? They, didn't, they don't know, right? That there's a treasure that's worth infinitely more than everything that you ever had. Only when we see Christ like that will we be free enough to boast in the cross, which means, I'll just give you, you're thinking, okay, how do I practically start to boast in the cross instead of the flesh? Give me three ideas to try to pursue this. Not coming from somebody who's arrived, but somebody who's practicing these. First, you need to identify what you currently boast in. You need to identify where your boast is now. And this may mean asking those questions that I, that I asked, those sort of diagnostic questions. When do you get oversensitive? When are you embarrassed? What would you be devastated to lose? It may mean asking somebody else, when do I get oversensitive? When do I seem defensive? What is my boast? First, you need to identify your boast. Second, you need to think about eternity. You need to think about heaven. There's the old saying, right? You think so much about heaven that you become no earthly good. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. C.S. Lewis said, I think it's chiefly since we stopped being heavenly minded that we became no earthly good. And the people who think most about the next life are the ones who do the most for this one. If you think about what is going to be yours in eternity, in a new earth, with a, with a perfect healed body, you're going to be able to... Think about this. If you live for eternity in a new earth and you can go anywhere you want to go forever, that makes your vacation this year seem a little less important, doesn't it? If you're going to inherit, you're going to be a king or a queen of the universe, that makes your money in this life seem a little less important, doesn't it? You're going to get back everything you've ever lost in this life and you're going to get infinitely more than you could have imagined. Why do you need thing? Why do you need anything in this life? Think about eternity. Think about heaven. And third, we need to focus on Christ. A five-minute quiet time in the morning in church a few times a month is not enough for you to be able to stand against the constant messaging that you get all day that, that money will give you what you want, sex will give you what you want, pleasure will give you what you want, a raise will give you what you want, a new job will give you what you want, a spouse will give you what you want, kids will give you what you want. We're hearing this all day long, and a couple minutes in the morning is not enough to get you through that. Even if you're in your mind, you know, right, I'm supposed to boast in, in Christ, but it works on the level of your heart, your affections, and your desires. And if you're not preaching the gospel to yourself all day, you won't be able to stand against it. Identify your boast, think about eternity, and focus on Christ. About 23, 24 years ago, uh, John Piper, who's a pastor and was a pastor in Minnesota, preached a famous sermon. 
And the sermon was on this text, on boasting in Christ and his cross. And uh, I, I just want to close by reading the first few paragraphs of the sermon. Piper said, he's preaching to a crowd of college-age people, and he says, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the cliff, and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida and New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That, he says, is a glory. And he says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. He says, I'll read to you from Reader's Digest, February 1998 edition. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be, I collected shells. See my shells? That Piper says, is a tragedy, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. Friends, don't buy it. Don't boast in the flesh. What is it for you? What is the thing that you think is going to gain the world for you? Is it your kids? If so, you'll crush them. Is it your spouse? If so, you'll crush them. Is it money? If you need money, you'll never be able to enjoy it. Is it religion? Is it your good works and your performance? Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Far be it from us to boast in anything except the cross of Christ.